It perhaps shouldn't surprise us that all the Gospels talk about the, what's been called the triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Uh, but just recently I had the chance to look at how Mark described it and also an opportunity to look at it in terms of the big picture. And what I want to do this evening is, yes, to get eventually to that journey and what it means, but to see it very much in its context uh, and do something which we don't often have the chance to do, I think, uh, in just a, 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 short, a short sermon. And that is to try to look at the themes that come through several stories as they uh, lead up to that, sto- that, that uh, triumphal entry passage in Mark chapter 11. Now, uh, if you look at Mark chapters 10 and 11, you will see that they very much form a a unit. Uh, At the beginning of chapter 10, it says, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea. Chapter 12, on the other hand, begins, he then began to speak to them in parables. So that's a new section. 10 and 11 come as a unit. And as I read through Mark chapter 10 and 11, I noticed that although the triumphal entry is there, there are lots of sort of recurring themes, uh, encounters with people, confrontations with the leaders, themes of money and of justice and riches all seem to be recurring. And so just for you to to look at, uh, at this in an overview before I start, I thought I would like to see a little bit of the structure and then take each of the couplets together as we make our way, as it were, to Jerusalem in the middle. The first story in chapter 10 is a, an entrapment confrontation with the religious leaders. They try to catch Jesus out on the subject of divorce. And then at the very end of chapter 11, the end of this double section, this double chapter section, You have another entrapment confrontation with the leaders on the whole issue of authority. On what grounds does Jesus do the things that he has done? The second story in chapter 10 is teaching. It's teaching about the nature of the kingdom of God, particularly in how it pertains to children. And then, working our way back, uh, on the other side of it in chapter 11, there's teaching on prayer. In chapter 10, verses 17 to 31, we have an encounter, our first encounter this time with a rich man. And you'll see why in a minute, but I've referred to him as a barren tree because the parallel passage in chapter 11 is Jesus' encounter, literally, with the barren fig tree. Then in chapter 10, in verses 32 to 34, and later in chapter 11, 18 and 19, there's a parallel passage where Jesus predicts his death. The final confrontation between him and the religious leaders uh, is predicted uh, in those verses. In chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, you see him confronting James and John on the whole issue of status and what matters Uh, in life and what matters in the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 11, it's a confrontation with the moneylenders over the whole issue of justice and the poor. And then at the very end of chapter 10, you have an encounter with someone else, this time unlike the rich man, someone who does follow, someone who does trust, Bartimaeus. It's a healing encounter. 
paralleled in chapter 11 from verse 12 to 14 with a a destructive encounter uh, with the fig tree. And right in the middle, at the beginning of chapter 11, you have the story commemorated today in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, if you look at that, it may look a little bit overpowering, but there's some interesting things about it because if you look at the beginning and at the end, if you see those as the the bookends, as it were, uh, in green, uh, and then in the middle uh, of each section, there's this final confrontation predicted, a, a central issue in these two chapters, that Jesus is going to suffer and die, then in the middle you will see the entry into Jerusalem. Uh, and that will be brought up for you there. Now, I'm not just doing this to sort of be, be smart or clever. In fact, when I read books that sort of set things like this out, I think, hey, they're pushing it a little bit. I don't know how they actually thought of that. But we do need to remember that Mark and the other gospel people's are, writers are arranged their subjects for a purpose. That's why you get them in different order at times in the various gospels. Uh, because they were arranged for a purpose. And I think, as I said, if you look at 10 and 11, they're very much a unit. And one of the reasons that I'm setting this out, one of the reasons that I'm looking at these other stories before saying a few words just about the entry into Jerusalem is because Jesus, in what he teaches and in what he says in these chapters, should be, is is preparing his disciples for the type of king he is, the type of values that are important in the kingdom of God, What's involved in being a disciple? And yet when we get to the entry into Jerusalem, the disciples still don't get it. They still don't get it. And what I'm trying to say here is that that what happened on Palm Sunday, the entry into Jerusalem, doesn't happen in a vacuum. It didn't just happen in the crowd sort of welcoming him and chanting, Hosanna, here comes the the king of, uh, Hosanna the son of David, here comes the, the promised king. They didn't just do that spontaneously. There was an expectation there, and it was an expectation that should have been eradicated if people had really been listening to what Jesus had been saying and what he'd been doing in these other stories. So let's look a little bit at them. First of all, at the entrapment uh, confrontation with the leaders at the beginning of chapter 10 and at the end of chapter 11. In one case, it's the debate over divorce, and in the other, it's a debate over authority. And the important thing here is that what's happening as we get towards Holy Week, what happens as we get towards chapter 10 in Mark's Gospel, is that the focus is changing from Jesus' works of power to his words of power. Changing from his works of power to his words of power. There is a subtle change. And we don't hear of too many more miracles after this. And particularly, there is the power to reinterpret the law radically. This isn't the the place for an extended discussion on what the Bible teaches on the complex issue of of, of divorce and of remarriage. Um, But sufficient to say that one of the things this is saying is that Jesus has the power and the authority to reinterpret the law in a radical way. He also had power to go into what I call sacred territory. One of the reasons that this entrapment confrontation happened was that the leaders were absolutely fuming mad at Jesus cleansing the temple, which is one of the stories here. And that's why they then say at the end of chapter 11, on what authority do you do these things? 
Jesus was going into territory that nobody else dared go into. He was challenging the leadership and the powers and the authorities of his day in, a, in an area where nobody else ever dared to challenge them. And one of the things that I think comes out of this is that since other people are affected by our actions, Jesus is saying that, we, that the law needs to be reinterpreted relationally. And whatever, and as I said, this is not the place for the discussion, but whatever the Bible does say about divorce and remarriage, and both Corinthians and, and Matthew offer qualifying clauses, and I think that um, certainly I don't believe that marital breakdown is somehow the only part of society or in life where, where Jesus does not offer a second chance. Uh, so I, I don't believe that that's the case. I believe there, there is grace. I believe in uh, all of that. But one thing that he was saying that we can't get away from is that there should be no easy divorce. There should be no easy remarriage. And when it came to the issue of justice and the money lenders in the temple and authority, there should be no easy money. There should be no easy exploitation. And the thing was that divorce was like the moneylenders, it was in this day and age for some people a form of exploitation where women and children were abandoned if the man simply had a whim to go off with someone else. So into that context, Jesus is reinterpreting the law where the law had been abused and he's going into territory that nobody else had gone into. Just one final comment on that um, passage of the uh, authority at the end of chapter 11. Uh, you'll notice that he, he does what he often does in those entrapment situations. He answers a question with a question. Uh, and he says, I, I will ask you one question. Uh, was John's baptism from heaven or from men? And of course, it means he never has to answer the question because he has caught them out. And I, I've called this a time to be silent. A time to be silent. Uh, because there are occasions when we are confronted where it is better to remain silent. I don't know whether it's sometimes when folks are raising objections to the Christian faith and you know that if you answered them they still wouldn't be any closer because they have no interest in becoming a Christian. They just have an interest in being smart. Now I do believe people have intellectual difficulties, real and genuine intellectual difficulties uh, and they need to be answered. But we need discernment to know when that is the case and when folks are just out to trap us. Jesus of course is the example uh, for that. I think that should be coming up on the screen uh, now. If we move on then to uh, the teaching, the next couple of, of pairs deal with what Jesus was teaching on the kingdom of God. And at the uh, second story in chapter 10, it's all about little children being accepted when the disciples were, were rebuking them. And Jesus speaking about how uh, unless uh, we receive the kingdom of God like a little child, we will never enter it. Uh, now, often we have this interpreted as you know, childlike uh, trust or, uh, you know, childlike innocence, uh, humility, uh, simplicity, modesty. So sometimes it's a little bit what I call of over-psychologizing. The fact is that, uh, as was shown in the previous story about divorce, where Jesus was interested in the rights of the woman and the children, uh, the children were the lowest of the low. They had no rights, absolutely no rights. Uh, in this society. And, and therefore I think bringing in the image of the child there. He was saying that when we're entering the kingdom of God. We abandon our rights. 
that entrance into the kingdom of God depends on submitting to God's rule. Just as faithful prayer at the end of chapter 11, when he's encouraging his disciples to be faithful and whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you've received it and it will be yours. Faithful prayer involves submitting to God's rule. So whether it's entering into the kingdom or faithful prayer, it will be submitting to God's rule. And of course this is going to have great significance as we get to to the entry into Jerusalem because this was something that still hadn't permeated. What did God's rule mean? What did it involve? I believe the effectiveness of our witness will depend on the openness of our hearts. If if the message of, of Jesus welcoming the children teaches us anything, it teaches us that Jesus welcomes those that no one else will welcome. And we cannot have an effective witness as the disciples of Jesus unless we welcome those who Jesus welcomes. Similarly, the effectiveness of our prayer depends on the openness of our hearts, the openness of our hearts to God's will and to others. The question here is do we trust uh, and, do we, uh, and do we forgive? Uh, Christ often says in his teachings on prayer that, uh, uh, as he says at the end of chapter 25, if you, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. The teaching on prayer in a couple of places in the gospel is intrinsically caught up in the teaching on forgiveness. And therefore the effectiveness of our prayer depends on the openness of God's hearts to other people and to God's will. If we move on then, to the first encounter, the encounter with the rich man and the encounter with the boundary. The encounter with the rich young ruler is a famous story, I'm sure many of you know it. Uh, it's, it's a very interesting story. Uh, he would have seemed to be quite a catch in many evangelistic missions. Uh, people maybe wouldn't have pushed him too hard on the money issue because, uh, sure, if he became a Christian and joined the church, then the church could well benefit from his riches. And yet the message that comes through in this encounter, I feel, is that sometimes people promise much, but disappoint. Sometimes people promise much, but will disappoint. And it's not helpful in many ways to get our hopes up about how other people are doing in their Christian lives uh, because we we may well be let down and disappointed. It's also possible, I believe, to be so good that you're actually bad. Uh, this rich young man would have been good by any moral standards, any earthly or worldly standards. And yet he left Jesus. He went away sad. He went on to live as far as we know without Jesus. It's fascinating, isn't it, that in terms of this radical reinterpretation of the law, the radical change that the Bible makes, uh, uh, the Bible says that Jesus makes to our lives that, that the values of the world are turned upside down. It is possible to be so good that we're actually bad. The story of the cursing of the fig tree is an interesting one because very often people will say, sure, this is um, unfair. You know, it says that it wasn't the time for figs, etc. Knowing the time of year that this was and knowing 
Um, what I have read about Israeli horticulture, because certainly uh, my knowledge of it is limited, uh, this was not the time for the was it not the time for the figs? Not the time for the harvesting of the figs. Not the time for the mature figs to have appeared. But it would have been the time when the the immature buds, which were also edible and, and quite tasty, should have been on the tree. Now Jesus is, is enacting a parable here. Uh, I like I like what one writer has said, where he says modern sympathies towards plant life. And insensitivities towards cursing should not distract us from seeing this as an acted parable with an important spiritual meaning. What Jesus was doing quite clearly here was making a point. And he was not cursing uh, the tree because the, the, the figs weren't mature. He was cursing it because it was barren. Jesus does not demand an unreasonable level of maturity in Christians as we journey in the Christian life. But he does ask for fruitfulness. He does ask for the evidence of life. And I believe that that is, that is quite important. And you see where I think the parallel is quite interesting here. The rich man really was a barren tree. There was no evidence of spiritual life. And asking questions like, how do I inherit uh, eternal life? Which, of course, is a, a foolish question because you don't uh, inherit eternal life. Uh, you, you, don't, you, cannot, you cannot do anything to inherit anything. You inherit something because uh, someone gives you a gift. One of the messages I think that comes out of that story with the rich man is the, is the damage that idolatry of riches can, can have on our lives. Idolatry of riches can clutter our life, it can destroy our relationships, and it will turn hope and love and desire to serve into sadness. That was the story of the rich man. His life was cluttered with all sorts of things that he wasn't prepared to get it decluttered to make space for Jesus. It destroyed uh, his relationships with others. It's interesting that Jesus talks about the second tablet of the commands when he talks to him, the second half of the Ten Commandments. And the reason that he focused on them was that they're the ones to do with relationships. They're the ones that damage our relationships. When we bear false witness, when we steal, when we murder, when we commit adultery, relationships are shattered. It's interesting, of course, that Jesus leaves out covetousness, which was the man's main problem. And it also turns hope and love and desire to serve. Which this guy seemed to have an element of. Well, what can I do? You know, there's an element there of hope and love and desire to serve. But because he was idolizing riches, that was all turned into a sadness. Because he didn't want to give it up. In chapters 10 and 11, as I said, uh, he, Jesus predicts his final confrontation. He says that he's going... Uh, to Jerusalem uh, where uh, he will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law, condemned to death and handed over. And the reason that this is important is that this sort of foolish idea that on Palm Sunday Jesus was riding in, prepared to be the messianic king, to bring in the kingdom there and then, but he got cold feet or the crowd turned against him and it didn't happen, is nonsense. 
Because before that happens, he predicts that he's going to the cross. He's not a victim of circumstance. He's wholly aware of his destiny and his mission. And the disciples, what they needed to learn, and this is what they didn't learn, and this is why I'm going through the chapters 10 and 11, to show you that they didn't learn what they should have known when it came time for Holy Week. They needed to learn that the strength and that the future of the kingdom lay in strength through weakness. That through the betrayal, through the handing over, through the scorn and through the whipping, all of that, God's real strength would be manifested. They needed to learn that you are deceived by God often through being rejected by others. You're deceived by God often through by being rejected by others. And this, of course, was foreign to them. They couldn't imagine any victorious king. They couldn't imagine anyone who was uh, remotely worth worshipping or serving being rejected. It was totally foreign to their understanding. And they needed to learn that real victory was actually coming through death. And when Jesus does that in these chapters, he's trying to prepare them to be different from the hopes and aspirations of the people around them and the culture who thought that a certain way about Messiah and thought a certain way about God's purposes for Israel. Chapter 10 from verse 35 then we have confrontation with James and John and in chapter 11 the confrontation with the moneylenders. Again there are values, there are upside down uh, values and there are upside uh, down priorities uh, which, which the disciples should have grasped by now. That greatness in the kingdom of God was not because of status or position, but rather through willing service and humble attitude. There really is the most uh, amazing insensitivity on the part of James and John uh, in this chapter. Jesus has just predicted his death. They should have been meditating upon this. They should have been thinking of the immensity of this. They should have been grieving over this. And yet what do we read? James and John want the best seats when it all happens. Service can be motivated by greed. And that is something that was clear with the moneylenders. They were providing a service for the worshippers. They could have argued that they were engaged in ministry. But it was motivated by greed. They were certainly engaged in a religious ritual. But yet you can observe religious rituals and deny God. The moneylenders found themselves part of a religion which exploited the poor and crowded God out. The interesting thing was they were cluttering up the court of the Gentiles. This court was meant to be the place. It was, if you like, the evangelistic center of the temple. It was meant to be the place where if anyone who wasn't a Jew wanted to find out about the God of Israel, they could come to the temple and they could find out, they could observe and listen and ask questions in the court of the Gentiles. 
But what, what we found was that there was no room for the Gentiles because they had crowded them out. And they had crowded God out of the lives of other people with all their activities. I wonder how easy it is in our church lives because of the necessities of keeping a church going and activities that might be necessary to keep the mechanisms and wheels of a church going. How easy it is to be so caught up in that that there is no space in our schedules, no space in our, in our buildings, no space in our services for those who might be inquiring. There is no court of the Gentiles. There is no place for seekers. And the moneylenders and James and John were in the same boat. They were still thinking about themselves. And they were crowding God out. Either side of the entry into Jerusalem, we have encounters. Encounter with Bartimaeus, which is a healing encounter. The encounter with the fig tree, which is a destructive one. Reminding us that God's word is a two-edged sword. In the words of Isaac Watts' hymn, God, he can create and he destroy. That as a two-edged sword divides, there is both healing for those who will accept submission to God, but there is also destruction. And God's word is also immediate and powerful in its effect. Those who like to point out problems in the Bible, and there are a few of those around, uh, a few people I mean rather than problems, um, like to point out how uh, in Mark's account, Jesus curses the fig tree, but then it's not really noticed till the next morning. Whereas um, in Matthew's account, it says uh, it immediately withered. Well, it's interesting because I did a little bit of look at, look on that subject. And the word immediately, just, I'm just giving you this as an aside in case anybody throws this up as, a, as an objection. Uh, the word immediately that Matthew uses is a word associated with miracles. Um, the, the word immediately for, you know, he immediately left the room or he uh, immediately went into another town is a different word. It's a time-related word. But the word that Matthew uses for immediately is a word that describes the immediate effect of something. And all of the New Testament references, apart from two to that word, have to do with miracles, and the other two have to do with the coming of the kingdom of God, which of course is also miraculous. So all the New Testament uh, words have to do, that, that Matthew uses for immediately, have to do with the miraculous effect of God's word. So the idea being, of course, Jesus curses that there will be an immediate effect on the tree. The lesson belonged to the next day as they saw it, in its destroyed form. So God's word is immediate and powerful in its effect. And here we also see that Jesus, in the midst of the crowd, as we think of the Bartimaeus healing, in the midst of the crowd, he has time for the needy. We see this elsewhere with the woman with the uh, issue of blood. We even see it in, in his love for the rich young man. It said Jesus looking on him loved him. Uh, we see him earlier on as he had time for the children uh, that the people were sending away. In the midst of the crowd, and I'm sure that as he was riding on that donkey into Jerusalem, the, the praises of the people meant nothing to them, to him. I'm sure they just rang hollow and empty. I'm sure he was thinking of individuals in that crowd. 
I'm sure he was grieving and, and praying for his disciples. Uh, because in the midst of the crowd, which means nothing to him, he has time for the needy individual. That was the way it was with Bartimaeus. Time to heal him. He calls the outcast who recognizes their need. But he judges the hypocrite who feels they are in no need. And that is always, again, the way of Christ. Those who recognize their need are welcomed. Uh, the hypocrites, the barren trees who feel they are in no need, he will leave to their judgment. Now all of this has been building up and all of it has been flowing from this entry into Jerusalem with which I close. But I thought just before I do, I would put up for you a number of questions for you to meditate on just as we close with a reflection on the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Questions gleaned from the stories that we have looked at so far. Pray through these. First of all, how prepared are we to allow Jesus to interfere in the sacred corners of our lives? The way that he interfered in the moneylenders' court and annoyed the religious leaders. The way he went into areas that nobody else had the authority to go into. How prepared are we to allow him into those areas of our lives that we give nobody else the authority to go into? How welcome our children in the life of our fellowships? How seriously do we take their instruction because they were precious to Jesus? To what extent are we still trusting in our own goodness and that the salutary lesson of the rich young man who was good, good, good and so good he was bad? What hold do riches have on our lives and ambitions? Can we really sing riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise? You my inheritance, now and always. To what extent is status important to us in a church context? Are we James or are we John? Believing that somehow being well thought of or having positions of influence are important. Not in God's eyes. Is our discipleship full-hearted and empty-handed like Bartimaeus who ran to Jesus and left his cloak behind him? The symbol of his livelihood as a beggar. Threw it off in expectation that Jesus meeting him would mean that he would never need that again. Do we come to Christ full-hearted and empty-handed, leaving behind the things that are important to our livelihood now because we hope that in encountering Jesus we will never need them again? To what extent are we barren trees, promising and pretending and yet being fruitless and disappointing? To what extent do our religious rituals crowd God out as the moneylenders did? How faithful is our prayer life? What mountains do we feel are immovable? And does Mark eleven twenty three speak to us this evening? Say to this mountain, go. And do not doubt, but believe that what he says will happen. It will be done for him. Into the midst of all these stories, with all of their lessons and all of their challenges, 
Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the centerpiece of this story. And it really shouldn't be referred to as the triumphal entry. There was no white charger, there were no trophies of war, there was no train of captives following behind. Jesus arrives in, riding on a donkey, and according to Matthew's uh, gospel, there was probably two, the mother was probably with it. Just as as a humble servant, a strange type of king. And as this king arrives, he comes in the threefold office, first of all, of servant. It's a journey of humility, speaking again against the James and John attitude. I visited a church of great wealth when I was in the United States, and it really was very ostentatious. It was difficult to be critical because they claimed to have a great ministry uh, among a number of people in that area. And it was an area of great wealth. And yet the, 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 the minister who was with me put his finger on it when, I, when he said, you know, the thing that they haven't really grasped is the suffering nature of the pilgrim people of God. Here we have no continuing city. We can build our edifices. We can make a name for ourselves. But the way of Christ, epitomized on that first Palm Sunday, was the journey of humility. The journey of a servant. Not on a war horse, but on a coat. He also came as the Messiah. But the Messiah, who was the suffering servant, crowned with thorns, enthroned on a cross, hailed not as king, but as a fool on Good Friday. But the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectation. Here he draws together all those arguments with the teachers of the law and shows himself to be the rabbi of all rabbis, the Messiah. God's chosen one. And yet that was a journey of judgment. Jesus comes into the temple. There's a sense of anticlimax at the end of that first story, Mark 11 and 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem. And as we read the story of the crowd shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We think that the next phrase is going to be that, that, he, uh, that he sets up his kingdom. And that he starts his revolution. And we read, he looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What an anticlimax. And yet that word, looked around, someone has written. It's a a word that is not simply the, the, the look of the eyes. It is a critical inspection to pour over. Jesus doesn't gawk like a tourist would have at the great building. He doesn't look piously as a worshipper would have done. He critically inspects it. The way a a quality control inspector would inspect a piece of merchandise. And he does so as the one who has authority over it and will judge it. 
The verse I began the service with, the Lord you wait will certainly come to his temple. Words made famous by Handel's Messiah, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And thirdly, it was the journey of the Saviour. A journey of sacrifice. This salvation had been predicted throughout the Gospels and particularly in the last few chapters. Salvation not from Roman oppression. Salvation not from any political foe. But a greater salvation. A bigger salvation. A bigger kingdom that the values he encapsulated in the rest of these chapters that we've looked at earlier all pointed to a different world, an upside down world. It's fascinating, isn't it? If Jesus had started a political revolution, Israel would have been a civil war torn province. And yet what happened was through this much deeper sacrifice, apart from its theological, its immense theological implications, the Pax Romana was kept. The political status quo remained and in the wonderful economy and wisdom of God, there was a degree of peace and justice. There was ease of trade and traffic. That was the soil in which the early church flourished and was born and flourished. The early church grew throughout the ancient Near East. Partly, historically, humanly speaking, because there was no great insurrection at that time in Israel. We must always assess political realities with reference to spiritual issues and the sovereign providence of God. What a message for us in Northern Ireland at this time. We must always assess political realities, not according to our preferences, but with reference to spiritual issues and the sovereign providence of God. And I actually believe that whatever the difficulties, whatever the bitter pills we may have to swallow, I firmly believe that nothing will help the gospel on this island more over the coming decades than a degree of peace and stability in this part of the world. And if we have a heart for God in Ireland and the spread of the church throughout Ireland, then we should be praying for the political realities that will make that easier. But of course, the salvation of which uh, Christ uh, spoke and the Saviour who he showed himself to be on this journey of sacrifice was a Saviour who would save us not from outside forces but from our own sinful nature. If we are, whether we're guilty like the disciples of petty nationalism or whether like James and John we're wanting the glory or whether we're like the crowds who cheered for him on Sunday but then cried for his blood on Friday, whether we are fickle, running away like the disciples when it got too hard, it's from all of that fickleness and all of that selfishness and all of that pettiness and all of that sin that he rode on in lowly pomp 
to die for us. Today heralds in a week of reflection. Someone has once said that the problem very often is that we meet on Sunday to think of Palm Sunday and the triumphal so-called entry. And very often we meet next Sunday to think of the glorious resurrection. But too many Christians don't meet in between enough to think about Good Friday, to think about Holy Week, to think about the passion and the suffering of our Lord. His journey was a journey of humility and of sacrifice. And if we are to follow him as his disciples, it must be our journey also. Let us pray.